Who are the real people we consider our sages? Who were they in life? What is the legacy they left us? Join Rabbi Danny Saxton for the next hour as he explores the lives of our Torah giants, the spiritual geniuses who shaped the way we approach Judaism today. That's focus on our sages right now on 101.9 High FM. afternoon and welcome to Soul to Soul. Always wonderful to be with you on a Wednesday afternoon. Um, as we've entered the month of December, the month of Kislev we're in, and uh, here in South Africa we begin to uh, tone down a little bit, to wind down as we uh, approach our summer holidays. And we wish all of our listeners safe holidays and holy holidays and time, special time with the family and focused on the family to build the family relationships, the relationships with our spouse, the relationships with our children, to spend quality time together and to recharge. Um, as Jews, we're never on holiday and we're always taking with us our holy Torah and we're still observing the mitzvahs wherever we are um, and at any time of the year. And this is a beautiful time of year because we have the, Han- the festival of Hanukkah, which is just around the corner. Um, next Thursday night is the first night of Hanukkah, it's when we light the first candle, and we light for eight days until the following Thursday night. And Hanukkah is a beautiful, wonderful, deep and powerful festival within Klai Yisrael. Tremendous messages and valuable, relevant um, light that we should be gaining from the festival of Hanukkah. Um, and we hope everybody has a wonderful Hanukkah, a Hanukkah that's filled with love and joy and uh remembering the power of the light of Torah against the darkness of Greek hedonism. It's really a clash of cultures between Jerusalem and Athens, between the Jewish people and Greek values and culture. And uh, the miracle of Hanukkah shows that the light of Torah always defeats the darkness of hedonism. Uh, I wanted to mention that yesterday was a significant day. Yesterday, today is the 16th of Kislev, the month of Kislev. Hanukkah is next Thursday night, which is the 25th of Kislev. Yesterday was the 15th of Kislev. Yesterday was the Yotzat of Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, the great and holy Tana. We call him Rebbe. Um, isn't that uh, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi means Rabbi Judah, the prince, or otherwise known as Rebbe, because he was the great leader of Klai Yisrael, his impact on the Jewish people, was critical and essential for survival in future generations. Uh, Rebbe, Rebbe Huda Nasi was born in the year 135 of the Common Era, and he passed away on this day, the 15th of Kislev, on the on 220 of the Common Era. And uh, so his uh, his uh, Yotzat is uh, you know is 1800 years ago to the day today. 1800 years ago is when Rebbe passed away, and Rebbe was a um, a uh, tremendous human being, a tremendous great genius of uh, understanding of Torah. He also developed very good relationships with the Romans who were uh, who had conquered the land of Israel, who were the authorities at the time of the land of Israel. It was just after the destruction of the Second Temple, and Rebbe uh, enabled, facilitated the position where Klai Yisrael, the Jewish people, could have these massive conferences, congresses, um, in order to um, come up with a comprehensive summary of the oral tradition of the Torah Shabal Peh. 
Now the Torah is made up of Torah Shabbat and Torah Shabbat the written Torah and the oral Torah. And the oral Torah was never meant to be written down because it was supposed to be communicated from father to son, from teacher to student. Um, and when, as we know, the, uh, the, un- the understanding and the knowledge that one receives from a personal example, from a real life teacher, is incomparable to what one receives from a book. And so it was not intended that the oral edition would be written down because it was always the goal that the soul of the Torah, the oral tradition, would be passed down from one generation to another. Um, in, 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 order, in other words, it would remain intact and it would be a complete comprehensive system in which the, the, the Rebbe or the father would make sure that the next generation would receive the whole system in the way it was intended, in the way it was supposed to be understood. Um, however, Rebbe saw that hard times were coming, that there were dark clouds on the horizon. And he therefore made the momentous and the very brave decision to write down the Mishnah. Um, and as he said, There is a time when we have to do what needs to be done um, for Hashem. And therefore he wrote down the oral tradition. Now he wrote it down in a very brief and cryptic manner in the Mishnah. He wrote what's called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah encompasses and covers the entire gambit of the oral tradition, which is uh, very, very comprehensive. It's the, so it, he, he wrote down the six orders of Mishnah, which we call Shash, Shash, Shisha Sidre Mishnah, the six orders of Mish, Mishnah. And, um, the, and that was then a, a, a summary. In other words, everybody submitted their teachings and their understanding, and Rebbe took it all, all into account, and he summarized and edited those teachings into what we have today called the Mishnah. And then the Gemara followed the next three centuries were the discussions of the Amoraim in the Bate Midrashos of what the Mishnahs mean, of what the Mishnahs are referring to, of how that Mishnah fits into the whole system. And that's the Gemara. So the Talmud is Mishnah and Gemara. And that's what we're studying all the time in uh, Yeshivot all day long. And that is the, the, and therefore, if one wants to understand the Torah, wants to have a, a comprehensive understanding of the Talmud, because that's everything. That's the whole system. And that's the teachings of the oral tradition, which were written down in order to keep them alive and to make sure they remained intact. So that was the momentous act of Rebbe, which was uh, vital and critical for the future of Kaisral and something that uh, we wouldn't have survived the way we have. and wouldn't have survived at all if Rebbe hadn't done that and written down the Mishnah is your thought yesterday. Now today and tomorrow also significant dates within the Jewish calendar. Today being the 16th of Kislev, is the anniversary of the 22nd Zionist Congress that took place in Basel in Switzerland in the year 1946. And that was, of course, in the immediate aftermath of the Holocaust, where the Zionist leaders had now lost patience with the British who were stonewalling about the creation of the State of Israel. They had promised with the Balfour Declaration 1922, but now they had backtracked and they had buckled to um, world pressure and pressure from the Arab states. And so... Uh, the Zionist uh, movement became fed up and decided to rebel and to um, oppose, resist the British policy and to try and chase the British out of the land of Israel. And uh, the Irgun, the Haganah, they uh, conducted various tactics in order to intimidate the British and in order to make it unmanageable 
for the British to remain in the state of Israel, and they were successful because that led to the British turning to the UN and um, looking for a solution from the United Nations in terms of the crisis that was going on in Palestine. Now, that leads us to tomorrow's date. Tomorrow's date also is very significant within the Jewish calendar. Tomorrow is the 17th of Kislev, and on the 17th of Kislev, that's when the United Nations voted in favor of partition for Palestine. Um, the very famous vote, uh, the vote that all of the Jewish world um, were listening to with bated breath and praying to God that the nations of the world would give Israel the opportunity to have their own state. And that would only be um, if um, the United Nations had settled. Now, why did the British hand it over to the United Nations? Well, the British felt that there would be um, there would be an impasse. In other words, they felt that um, there would be no way that the United Nations actually would vote in favor of the partition because they knew you needed a two-thirds majority. And the two-thirds majority um, would be very, very unlikely to achieve because um, it was very, very difficult, to, of course, to achieve a two-thirds majority in the United Nations and certainly in, 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 uh, in Israel's case because the, the British felt that um, the world would never support such a such a an option, and the, the the Russians would be against it, and the Arab states would be against it, the Muslim states would be against it, and so the Jews um, there would be no solution from there would be no resolution to um, actually um, have an a, an independent state or partition, and so the what the, the the tactic of the British was actually that uh, that it would be it would create such an impasse that they would. The United Nations would ask for England to remain, and they would give them the money. The problem is they were running out of money. It was too expensive to to manage and to police the uprisings and the chaos that was going on deliberately count, uh, carried out by Jewish organizations in order to push the British out. So I'll just, uh, before our ad break, I'll just share with you what the British cabinet uh, meeting minutes were, um, as quoted by Ernest Bevan, who was the um, foreign secretary. He said, look at the United Nations Charter and then look at the nations belonging to it. In order to obtain a favorable decision for partition, the Jews will need a two-thirds of the votes of countries in the General Assembly. This will only be able to – they will only be able to obtain it with the Western and Eastern blocs uniting together, both supporting the decision and the implementation of the resolution. Nothing like this has ever happened. It cannot happen. It will never happen. The British were very, very confident that no such uh, resolution will be passed by the General Assembly. But stay tuned. We'll be back after this ad break and we'll see the incredible, miraculous events that took place, anniversary of which is tomorrow, um, the 17th of Kislev, when the vote took place. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. So let's discuss a little bit. It's a very exciting topic. And, you know, as I mentioned, the anniversary of the vote in our nation to, for partition in Palestine is tomorrow, the Jewish date of the 17th of Kislev, the uh, the, in the non-Jewish calendar, it was the 29th of November, 1947. 
So, as I mentioned, the British were confident that the, there would not be a resolution passed in the United Nations in the General Assembly because it needed a two-thirds majority, Eastern and Western blocs to therefore agree, which would, had never been happened, never happened before, and they were sure that it would never happen in the future. Um, and so they set up, they recommended that the UN should come and have a look at what was going on and to make recommendations to the General Assembly. And they sent up UNSCOP, which is United Nations Special Committee on Palestine. And UNSCOP, a lot of details what happened over there and who made up, well, we don't have time for all that now. But they voted, it was a very close vote, but they voted in favor of partition, to partition Palestine. Part of it will be given to Arabs and part of it will be given to the Jews. And um, that proposal was now sent to the General Assembly. And as mentioned, a two-thirds majority was necessary for it to pass. Now, the Russians were critical in all of this. And obviously, you know, their, their position was very significant. Russian policy from that time, um, which is actually clear now because we've got access to the government archives that we never had before, is they said if we support the Arabs, we'll have an Arab country that will be poor, that will have no economic basis, and that will be stuck with the fundamental fundamentalist uh, ideas of Islam. Better to have a Jewish state, which will be rich and powerful with a strong economy, and will subvert it from within and take it over. So rather than having a poor country that we have to keep supplying with materials and with money, let's take over a rich company, country which will be uh, self-sufficient and an ally for us. That was the Russian approach. And um, the, they therefore signaled the Russian Foreign Office that they would be in favor of partition. And uh, obviously that was a great shock to the world and certainly to the British. And um, the, uh, the um, Russian um, representative of the United Nations, his name was Andrei Gromenko, he spoke on behalf of Russia and he said, we endorse the aspirations of the Jewish people for the establishment of a Jewish state. Everybody was shocked, nobody saw it coming. And he said, no Western country succeeded in protecting the elementary rights of the Jewish people and therefore my government will support partition. So that obviously changed everything for the Jewish people because um, with the Russians in favor of the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union wasn't one vote. It also was Ukraine, it was Belarus, and other independent states. You had Hungary, Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia. So those are, it's not only Russia, but it's another seven countries that would follow. There was the Eastern Bloc that would vote with Russia. So for the first time, it became possible to achieve a two-thirds majority for the Zionist movement. Um, now, the next uh, linchpin, the next major player was, of course, the United States. The president of the United States was Harry Truman at the time, and Truman and the State Department viewed the issue very differently. Uh, General George Marshall was the Secretary of State. who was one of the great heroes of World War II. He oversaw the training and armament of the U.S. Army, he came up with a Marshall Plan that saved Europe. He was a very talented, intelligent person. And Marshall said to Truman, if you support a Jewish state, I'll resign as Secretary of State and I'll camp campaign against you in the 1948 presidential elections. Now, Truman was somebody who didn't like to be told what to do, and he certainly didn't like the tone of voice of Marshall. And he said, George, you do what you have to do, and I'll do what I have to do, but George I, George, I want you to remember that I'm still the president of the United States. So Truman made a commitment to the 
um, you, the American Zionist movement that he would support partition. And so the Zionist movement now had to work very hard to gain votes from the different governments around the world, and they used all different means in order to do so. Um, one delegation was kept up all night with, with alcohol, with women, and in the, in the morning was the time for the vote. The representative of the country didn't know where he was. His government told him to vote no, and he voted yes. So there was lots of things going on, but every vote was vital and was essential and was critical. And the big day, November 29, 1947, the 17th of Kislev, 1947, the votes took place. I'm sure many of our listeners have heard the radio recording of um, what was taking place of the live vote in the United Nations, and they voted 33 in favor and 13 against, which was two-thirds in favor, which is quite unbelievable, just an amazing, incredible, miraculous achievement. I mean, today we wouldn't get, never mind two-thirds, we wouldn't get two votes today in the, in the United Nations. So it was really an amazing situation. It was very strong momentum, and it already had a momentum of its own, really against against logic, and it was something what we call hashkocha pratis, which is divine providence. There was something miraculous going on. Hashem was steering events, Baruch Hashem, um, in this direction. So of the 13 no votes, 11 were Muslim countries, as well as Greece and Cuba also voted against. The partition plan is passed. And now they had to draw the borders. The Jerusalem would be declared an international city, which is uh, totally surrounded by uh, the the Arab state of the partition. And um, the only large area that the Jews would receive in the partition was the Negev, which was a desert. It was it was uh, arid land that was uninhabitable. And um, within the Arab section of the partition, there would be 804,000 Arabs and 15,000 Jews. Within the Jewish section, there would be 600,000 Jews and 130,000 Arabs. Um, that was in 1947. Um, as of last year, the census in Israel, the Israeli population has uh, expanded, has grown tenfold, and there's 6.6 million Jews in Israel as of last year's census. Bli Ayin Hara, the Kane Yerbu, so made increase. And for the first time uh, last year, the amount of Jews in Israel exceeded the amount of Jews in the diaspora. And we very clearly see around the world a movement of the Jewish people back to our homeland, back to our rightful, God-given homeland, back to Eretz Israel. And that's a beautiful thing to see in our times. It's just a great miracle what has unfolded in front of all of our eyes. And please God, it should only continue and Jews from around the world should go home and return home and build up the state of Israel and build up the Jewish people. Now, the Jews immediately accepted the partition plan. Um, as uh, Rabbi Herzog, who was the first chief rabbi, said, whatever is given, we will accept and we will build from there. Um, something is better than nothing. So even though even though it was very much unfavorable, the terms, in other words, the, um, the, the, the land that the Jews got was... Uh, was not very good. It was all the, you know, the, the unfavorable parts of the, of the land that was divided. But nonetheless, the Jewish view, the, the Jewish agency, and quite unanimously through the Jewish people, was that whatever we can get, we will take, and we'll build it from there. The Arabs rejected it. And here is really the crucial point, is that um, it became an ex existential issue, not a territorial issue for the Arabs. 
they rejected the idea of the state of Israel. It wasn't where, the question wasn't where do we draw the borders? And that's our issue. The question was the existence of a state of Israel was unacceptable and intolerable for the Arab nations and the Arab people. And that really is a great mistake that all Arab leadership has uh, been making is they constantly reject any proposal for peach, peace and for mutual understanding um, because they can't tolerate the existence of a Jewish state, of the state of Israel. And that's why the uh, Abraham Accords and what, what's been achieved this year with the peace treaties with the Emirates and with Bahrain is such a massive achievement. It's so momentous because it enables the Arab world to come to terms with the fact that Israel is there, Israel exists, and to work together with Israel in peace and for mutual benefit of the region. And that's why it's a tremendous achievement of the United, the, the outgoing administration of the United States. Jared Kushner, the President Trump's son-in-law, was uh, did fantastic work, really superb work in this area, and was able to approach it from a totally different angle and to uh, w- win over the uh, Sunni Arab states. Uh, largely because the, of the threat of Iran, is they understand what a threat Iran is to peace in the Middle East and to, not only to Israel, of course to Israel. And, you know, the Iranian nuclear program is aimed at Israel and they're not shy to say it. They said almost every day they threaten Israel that they're going to develop nuclear weapons and fire them on Israel. But also the Sunni Arab states are in danger and are threatened. So they understand that to create an alliance um, together with Israel is also in their favor in terms of uh, being a buffer and uh, resisting the aggression and the threats of Iran, which is a terrorist state that funds terrorism around the world and uh, wants to uh, expand their their power in the region. So, so back then, none of the Arab states were could tolerate the existence of the land of Israel. And still, many parts of the Arab world see it that way, and certainly the Palestinians see it that way, that it's not a territorial issue, but an existential issue, and the existence of Israel cannot be tolerated, but uh, you know, one needs to stand up to that and be strong. Israel's there. Israel's not going anywhere. Be'ezra Hashem, and please God, it should only get stronger and stronger, and so it would make sense for all of the countries in the region to join together and to work in harmony and to have peace. That's really up to the Palestinians. Israel wants peace more than anything, as is shown with its a successful peace treaties with Jordan and with um, Egypt and now with uh, Bahrain and, and Emirates. So please God, the Palestinians will come around and also see that their approach of terror and of violence is not a successful one. And uh, they too should join the negotiating table and there should be peace. But uh, what happened in, uh, back then in 1947 was immediately there was war. And it really hasn't stopped from these areas of the Arab world. And uh, the uh, the so Israel would now, the partition plan was approved, and Israel had to decide what it was going to do. Um, there was terrible unrest in the land, in the country, and uh, the British uh, supplied the Arabs with arms and with training, and the Irgun stepped up their attacks. Um, the Grand Muf- Mufti of Jerusalem, Hajj Amin al-Husseini, um, he was a very significant person at that time within the Arab world. And he was the, you know, today we have Nasrallah, today we have Abbas, we have Mashal of, of Hamas. He was the, that kind of a figure back then. And he declared war 
against the Jews in Palestine. Um, he was an active collaborator with the Nazis. Uh, he met with Hitler, and he said, what, you know, when the German army comes, we will have a Holocaust in, in Palestine as we did in Eastern Europe. Um, and anyway, so, so that was the situation that, ha- that happened. Um, so the Zionists made a last attempt to, to, for peace, and they were rejected. We won't go into those details right now of, of what happened. But um, things were now very unsettled in the land. So after partition, which is the anniversary tomorrow, was declared, was voted in favor of, so um, there was a lot of unrest and violence in the country in Palestine. And um, Truman now began to have second thoughts. And he said, you know, this war is unacceptable. And the State Department put a lot of pressure on him. And the, the, so he now wanted to withdraw his uh, support of partition. And they came, the State Department came with the, a, the American representation of the UN was Warren Austin and he proposed something called trusteeship. Um, and he said that, you know, we need to have peace and that will be peace. And um, the Russians opposed it because they wanted war and they would step in. The British opposed it because they also wanted war and they would step in. And the plan really went nowhere. But the Zionist movement tried to convince Truman and try to win him over. So this is just an incredible part of what happened back then, an incredible piece of history. Um, so Truman had decided he was won over by the State Department, and now trusteeship would be what America wanted, and no longer would they support um, would they support partition, which was a big blow to to the Zionist movement and threatened the independence of a state of Israel. So. They couldn't get to Truman. The Zionist movement tried to meet with Truman, and he said, no, everybody's driving me mad. I won't meet with anybody. My mind is made up. And so they, the Zionist movement, they tried every possibility, and their last option was to approach um, a Jew who was also from Kansas City. His name was Eddie Jacobson, and Eddie and Truman had, a, had been partners. They had a haberdashery store in Kansas City in the 1920s, the store went bankrupt, but they were remained very close friends. And although Jacobson was an assimilated Jew, um, this was a time where all Jews felt that they had to do what they could for the preservation and survival of the Jewish people. Remember, it's just after the Holocaust. And uh, there was a, a, a feeling within the Jewish world that everybody has to play their part. Um, otherwise, there's no future for the Jewish people. And so Jacobson... Um, he was approached by the Zionist movement, and they said, uh, he said, what do you want from me? And they said, please go meet with your friend Harry Truman and, and convince him to have a meeting with Dr. Weizmann, Dr. Chaim Weizmann. Weizmann, by the way, had been pushed aside by then and had been, you know, the, the mainstream Zionist movement felt that he was old, he was too close to the British, he was almost blind by then. But they realized the only statesman, the only person who would succeed or have a chance of uh, convincing Truman would be Weizmann. And so Eddie goes, he travels to Washington, and he meets with his friend Truman. So please stay with us. We're going to have a short break, and I'll tell you what happened as soon as we return. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM.
So we have a, an impasse, and uh, the Americans now, uh, Truman now is not supporting partition, but he rather wants this idea of trusteeship, which was a big blow to the Jewish people and to the Zionist movement. And so um, they approach Eddie Jacobson to, to, on their behalf, speak to Truman, because there's no other way to get to him. And so Jacobson travels from um, from Missouri to to Washington at his own expense, by the way. And he he goes into the president's office. He has an open door over there to his dear friend. And Truman says to Eddie, how are you? What can I do for you, my friend? So he said, I only have one favor to ask. And I know it's wrong of me to ask. I apologize in advance. But please meet with Dr. Weizmann just for a few minutes. It will make a big difference. And apparently Truman writes in his own memoirs that he was very angry. And he cursed him. And he said, uh, 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 you know, they've got to you, Eddie, and I don't think that's fair tactics, but I have to do it for you, my friend. And I'll meet with, I'll meet with Weizmann because you're asking me. Uh, quite unbelievable. And so he meets with Weizmann and a few minute meeting turns into one and a half hours. Uh, Truman's very impressed with Weizmann with his sincerity, with the case he presented. And he told them that the State Department will withdraw their idea of trusteeship. And they go, will go back to supporting partition. There'll be a Jewish state and the United States will support the establishment of the state of Israel. And Chazal, our sages tell us, Ain lo Adam she'en lo Shah. There's no person who doesn't have his moment in history, his moment to make a contribution, his time to, um, make a significant difference and change. And, you know, Jacobson, there was, this was Jacobson, Eddie Jacobson's hour. I've actually seen an interview of his daughter who spoke about it. And, uh, he could have said, I'm busy. He could have said, I don't want to get involved. Could have said, my friend Harry will resent it and he, it will destroy our friendship. But he did it. He remained, he, he did what needed to be done. And Truman remained loyal. Um, and he pursued it till the end and the first country to accept the um, to recognize the state of Israel when it was declared on May the 14th, 1948, was the United States of America. So all of these incredible events we remember as the anniversary of the uh, partition vote took place, uh, on which will be tomorrow, the 17th of Kislev, 1947. I just want to share with you um, a beautiful idea that um, I came across. Um, maybe we were running out of time. You know, maybe I'll do a little bit about Hanukkah first, and then we'll see how much time we got left. So um, it's important that we have a appreciation for and awareness of the significance of Hanukkah. Um, so on Hanukkah, we are all obligated to light the Hanukkah menorah. So let me give you a little bit of the historical background, and then we can discuss maybe some of the halachas of the lighting of the menorah. So in the year 323 before the Common Era, the great conqueror of the world, Alexander, died. Alexander the Great. Alexander was an incredible human being. He conquered most of the civilized world at the time. And he died at the age of 32. He did this all by the age of 32, which is unbelievable. And um, it was clear that after him, it wouldn't be easy to keep the massive Greek empire together. And the empire did split. It split into the Northern Empire and the Southern Empire. Um, the uh, Northern Empire 
was the were the Assyrian Greeks, none of the Assyrian Greeks. Um, the southern empire was the uh, was Ptolemy Ptolemy and Greeks, and Israel was usually um, controlled by the southern empire. In the year 200 before the Common Era, so um, the King Antiochus III defeated King Ptolemy. Um, so the king of the northern empire, Antiochus III, de- uh, defeated uh, Ptolemy, who was the king of the southern empire. And he um, conquered the land of Israel. And in the year 175 before the Common Era, the, his son Antiochus IV took over. And Antiochus IV was a virulent anti-Semite. He saw a tremendous threat coming from the Jewish people. Up until then, under Greek rule, things were okay. Things were manageable. Things, Alexander actually was very good to, uh, unlike most of the, or almost all of the other places he conquered, Alexander was brutal and was vicious, killed most of the men, kept the women and children, and uh, established uh, Greek control, which was a dictatorship, which was um, very oppressive to the local populations. But in Israel, um, he was far more tolerant, and he had, there were many reasons for that. One of them was that um, he uh, saw uh, visions in his before or during his battles of a man with a white beard. And when he came to conquer Jerusalem, Shimon HaTzadik was the leader of the Jewish people, came out, and Alexander got off his horse and bowed down. And he said, you the face that I see when I wage my battle. And how could I um, be of assistance to you as we enter in and conquer your land? And so uh, from that point on, um, things were very good for the Jews while Alexander was still leading the Greek Empire. But he died in 323. This is already, you know, over 100 years, 150 years later, um, when Antiochus IV now takes over, and things turn really bad for the Jewish people. And Antiochus IV bans all learning of Torah, bans the observance of mitzvahs, and makes it impossible to continue to live as a Jew. And um, it was just untenable. It was unmanageable. And uh, the oppression was very severe. Uh, a Jews caught studying Torah were murdered. Were, were it was a crime punishable by death, and uh, there were many many other terrible things. They uh, defiled the temple. They um, they also defiled. They violated the Jewish woman before a Jewish woman would get married. She would have to spend the night with a Greek officer. Um, it was just unmanageable the suffering and the and the oppression. And some Jews decided to stand up. And rebel against these oppressors. Um, one of them was Metisiyahu the Kohen Gadol. And Metisiyahu had five sons. His sons were Shimon, Yochanan, Eliezer, Yonasan, and Yehuda. And Metisiyahu, together with his five sons, waged guerrilla warfare against, against the Greeks. And the war was absolutely miraculous. It was incredible. And, uh, you know, these were rabbis. These were Tommy the Chachamim. They didn't. They were not Navy SEALs. They didn't know how to wage war. They weren't trained in in uh, military tactics. But they were very smart, and they uh, knew that the powerful Greek army couldn't be taken on head on, and so they introduced to the world guerrilla tactics. And they only uh, showed themselves, and they they were only clever enough to strike when they knew the odds were in their favor. When they set up ambushes. When they took on small Greek um, uh, numbers, and they were able to be such a thorn in the side of the Greeks, together with many miracles that took place, 
during their rebellion during the war. And as they became more and more successful, so their numbers swelled and more Jews joined them and were part of the rebellion. And eventually for the Greeks, it was just so unmanageable, so untenable that they decided it would be easier for them to leave. What did they need this little piece of land for? They'll just, you know, they need to manage a large empire and they could quite easily do without this little uh, place called Israel. And so the Greeks left, which was a tremendous, magnificent victory on behalf of the Jewish people. And when they um, were able to rededicate the temple, when they got the, the Greeks defiled the temple, as I mentioned, but when they came to the temple to reinaugurate the temple, um, they were able to, they found one jar of oil. So remember, everything in the temple had to be tahor. There are laws of tum and tahara, of purity and impurity. They had need to be pure oil to light the menorah in the temple, which was lit every day. And that jar was only sufficient for one day's lighting. And it would take them another seven days. It would take eight days to produce new oil that was tahor, that was pure. And that jar that was had enough oil for one day actually burned for eight days. So that was the great miracle of the menorah. And that was... Um, that's uh, just displayed the miraculous palms and the miraculous victory against the Greeks. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. talking about the historical background of Hanukkah, of the beautiful festival of Hanukkah, which is starting next Thursday night. Um, with the first candles we, count, we light are next Thursday night, the 10th of December. We continue to light um, for eight nights until the last night is the Thursday night, the 18th, 17th of December. Um, and we celebrate, so when they arrived in the temple, there was one jar, and it was enough uh, oil to burn for one day, but miraculously it burned for eight days. And therefore, our sages instituted that for all future generations, at this same time, on the 25th of Kislev, we should all, every Jewish household, should light their own menorah. And uh, we in Israel, they're placed outside uh, by the entranceway to one's apartment, to one's home, um, or, or if it's in a window below um, 20 amas, uh, below... Um, 10 meters, so then you, you could light in the window. If it's above that, then you can't really see it from the street. You know, it doesn't grab your eye. So here in Chutzlar, it's here in, in, in the diaspora, we usually light in the living room, in the room that we are going to be where we use it most. And um, opposite the doorway of that room, so on the right hand side of the, by the doorway is going to be your mezuzah. On the left hand side, as you're entering into your living room, the area where you'll be for lighting, um, so that's where we light the menorah. And, um, each, all of us should make an effort to do so, to light the menorah and to place it there and to remember the incredible miracles of that took place um, 2,000 years ago. But more than that, also to remember that the light of Torah will always defeat the darkness of Greek values and Greek culture and Greek hedonism. There was a civil war going on in the land of Israel um, against what was called the Misyavnim, which were those Jews that actually took on Greek culture and assimilated um, into Greek philosophy, Greek way of life. And those Jews that remained loyal to the Torah, those Jews that remained loyal to our holy tradition, those Jews that remained loyal to the values and morals 
that God gave us at Mount Sinai by which we are all supposed to live our lives. And so, you know, that ongoing struggle um, continues. And it, that, it wasn't just a once-off back then in Hanukkah, but that's pretty much what's been going on in the Jewish world ever since. And certainly today we see those rival forces within the Jewish people, those that remain loyal to Klai Israel and to the values of God and the Torah and the light of morality that comes from the creator of the universe and those that want to take on Western values, uh, hedonistic values of Western society and Western culture and want to undermine our ancient tradition and want to discard and dispose of our ancient tradition. Uh, but thank God we're very fortunate in South Africa. We have a traditional Jewish community, a Jewish community that's still connected to our roots, Jewish community that's still open to learn and to grow and to um, hear about the beautiful, rich heritage of the Torah that we have. And so when we light those Hanukkah candles, we remember the light of Torah and the, how it defeats the darkness of hedonism and of Greek values. And um, we should light the, the general candle lighting time is 20 minutes after sunset. So in Joburg, um, sunset is, is at 6.53. So the candle lighting time will be 7.15 in Joburg for Hanukkah. Um, I actually haven't looked up Cape Town. So Cape Town, if you're going to Cape Town, just look up sunset time and light 20 minutes after sunset. The candles must burn at least for half an hour. Says the so make sure that you're using, uh, it's better to use oil, to use olive oil, because that's how the miracle took place. You can buy a Hanukkah and have olive oil. That is the ideal way. Um, but if you want to use candles, don't use those like birthday candles that last five minutes, because then you don't fulfill the mitzvah. It has to be at least a half an hour. You can use tea lights or you can use thicker candles that will burn for at least half an hour. And uh, we should all make an effort to light the Hanukkah candles, and to think about these beautiful ideas and concepts. So Hanukkah is a beautiful time of celebration, of rejoicing, of praising God, of thanking God for the miracles and for the miracles in our lives and for the light in our lives and the light of Torah and the holy Torah values that guide us in this world of darkness. So it's a time of great simcha and of rejoicing. And there are, we end, we'll end with this. There are some interesting customs for Hanukkah. Um, one of them is to give tzedakah. We give tzedakah and we specifically try to give tzedakah to those that are learning Torah, those that uphold the Torah, and because we're celebrating the light of Torah. Um, and also, yeah, perhaps that's where the Minag of Hanukkah Geld came from, that we give our ch- the children money. We also have Sufganios. We have donuts on Hanukkah. Um, donuts are, uh, some say it's a Torah commandment to have donuts on Hanukkah. Anyway, we, the custom to have donuts on Hanukkah because it's an oily food. And we remember the miracle of the oil. So therefore we make an effort to have donuts. And we have Mochiks also on Hanukkah because Yehudis was the daughter of Yochanan. She was taken by the Roman, the chief of staff of the Greeks. And she fed him very salty cheese. And then he had a lot of wine. He passed out. She cut off his head. And that was a turning point in the battle. So we have the Mochiks to remember the great heroism of Yehudis at the time of Hanukkah. So wishing everybody wonderful and safe holidays. And a Freilicher Hanukkah, a Hanukkah filled with light and with joy. And uh, thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful day.